John chapter 6. Would you look over there and I'd like to just read our text. We're going to be looking at verses 41 through 51 in that great chapter of John 6. You follow along as I begin in John 6, 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes is eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Open our eyes that we might see your word. Father, give us an ear to hear. Illuminate our minds and hearts that we might see clearly the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ on the sovereignty of God. And so to that end, we pray and ask your guidance to us this day that we might be more of Christ, that we might exalt the Savior in every way. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, this is the sovereignty of God on part three, and uh, it's been so good to interact with so many of you by way of email and just by getting together in these last, last weeks together as we have discussed the sovereignty of God in our salvation, that namely he is sovereign, namely that he takes the initiative in that, namely that he calls us and chooses us, and we've been looking at that theme. We cannot argue against that. But we also recognized the tension in the scripture. Certainly not confusion in the text, but in our understanding of God's sovereignty set alongside man's responsibility. I mean, on the one hand, as I mentioned, salvation is a sovereign work of God on our behalf. Look down in chapter 6 and verse 37. Jesus says there, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Very clear. All that the Father and His sovereignty gives to me will come. Look at verse 44. We just read that. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Very clear on the sovereignty of God. Uh, look over at chapter 6, verse 65. Then he, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. In fact, these are difficult statements. Verse 66, you'll note there that many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. In other words, the truth that he spoke caused those to disperse. It's a very interesting chapter, and we'll see that in the weeks to come. So clearly, all the Father gives to me, Jesus said, will come to me. And yet, yet, look at verse 40. This is the will of my Father, and look at the words, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. It's everyone who looks at the Son. In fact, go back to verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and now this, and whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. So in one passage... In one chapter, in one gospel, you have the sovereignty of God in salvation, but also a command to believe the gospel straight from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, set side by side. In fact, we're well aware of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whosoever, what, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's whoever believes or whosoever believes in him. So God's wonderful salvation in his only son is made available to whoever 
believes in him. In fact, no one is excluded from the gospel. When you look back in John chapter 1, in verse 12, where he came into his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, in verse 12, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There you have it. But to all who did receive him. When you go over to John chapter 3, in verse 36, you see that open invitation of the gospel. John 3, 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Look over in John chapter 5. And in verse 24, you have a similar statement. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him has eternal life. So you have this open invitation of the gospel. When you go to the book of Acts, it's the same way. In Acts 2.21, it says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, that gospel comes indiscriminately, if you will, to the whole world. It says in Acts chapter 10 and verse 43 that the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. The scriptures replete with this open invitation of the gospel. Paul even said in the book of Romans in chapter 10 and verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so there's this open invitation. And so on the one hand, he's sovereign, only those whom the Father draws. On the other hand, the scripture is very clear that man is responsible to believe in the gospel. In fact, the Bible never says that sinners miss heaven because they are not elect, but they miss heaven, the writer of Hebrews says, because they neglect so great a salvation and because they do not repent and believe in the gospel. So, beloved, how do we harmonize those two truths? God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And we said the answer is you can't harmonize those two truths. Both those truths are taught in Scripture. They're both taught in John chapter 6. So you have to affirm both of them. Here's what Grudem said in his theology. He said exactly how God combines his providential control with our willing and significant choices Scripture does not explain to us. But rather than deny one aspect or the other, simply because we can't explain how both can be true, we should accept both in an attempt to be faithful to the teaching of all of Scripture. End of quote. I think he's right there. We've got to to see both of these truths. What truths? God is sovereign and man is responsible uh, with the gospel. Christ saves all who trust in him, and he saves all those whom the Father has given. And we're going to see this tension again as we turn our attention to the text in John chapter 6. Now, we're studying here the discourse of Jesus on the bread of life. And in the last weeks together, you remember, we were looking at five bold declarations that highlighted the nature of our salvation and our eternal security. Five declarations, and I think there they are right there. There They demanded a sign. Then Jesus corrected them and developed the Scripture. Then in that great statement in 635, he declared and disclosed himself as the bread of life. But as soon as he disclosed himself as the bread of life, there's a fourth declaration, the disbelief of sinners. In fact, look at chapter 6 in verse 36. He said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So there was disbelief, and one would think that the Lord Jesus Christ would be discouraged, but he wasn't, and that's where we left off. The determination of his sovereignty, look at it again in verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will, in fact, come to me. In other words, he's sovereign in that. So our Lord is ever throwing the seed, if you will. Now, where we come to this text now in John is he's moving us, is the Lord Jesus Christ, John the writer, from that teaching on the bread of life, here's how to see it, 
to the response of that teaching. In other words, he just laid that out in John 6. Now when you get to verse 41, he's going to deal with the response and then his response to the crowd. And what I want us to look at is three details on the sovereignty of God and salvation that just give us another crystal clear picture of Christ's deity. And in addition to highlighting his deity, it highlights the salvation that he himself would bring. But three details. I want to look at the leader's response. What did they do with this teaching on the bread of life? Then secondly, I want to look at the Lord's rebuke. He rebukes them, okay? Secondly. And then thirdly, and most importantly, the Lord's revelation of himself. He clarifies once again, okay? So let's just dive into the text and see what the Lord has for us this morning in verse 41. I'll call it the leader's response. The leader's response. It said, so the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now, it does say there, as you see in verse 41, that the Jews grumbled about him. But I took some time in another message to say that often when John writes that, he's not just talking about the Jews. It certainly could be the Jews in general. But he's often talking about the leaders. And I think particularly here, he is talking about the leaders. If you glance over to chapter 6, you're in it, verse 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So remember, he's in the synagogue when he gave the discourse on the bread of life. So I really believe here he's dealing with the leader's response. Now here it says that the Jewish people or the Jewish leaders, they grumbled. They grumbled. And it's interesting that they're grumbling over his discourse on the bread of life. What's fascinating about that, and certainly if you've been in Christ for a little bit, you remember that in the book of Exodus, when the nation grumbled, their forefathers grumbled in their hearts. In fact, there it is on the screen in Exodus 16.2. Remember this when they were complaining about the food? And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, there's our word, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. In other words, they grumbled before the manna was given to them. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat in the morning, here it is, bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. Moses just says, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And so just as the nation of Israel grumbled over food, both before and after it was delivered, it's fascinating that as Jesus identified himself as the bread of life, here in verse 41, they're grumbling again. Now, beloved, they're grumbling, if you look at the text, over two specific matters. Look at verse 41. They grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It's not so much that he said that I'm the bread from heaven, but the fact that he said that I am the bread that has come down from heaven. In fact, look back at verse 38. Jesus said there, for I have come down from heaven. And there's five different places right here where he says that. So what's the point? Well, that he has a divine origin, okay? So they're grumbling, number one, over the fact of what he said, that I have a divine origin, that I am the bread that sustains and imparts spiritual life, that imparts eternal life. And so number one, they grumbled over what he said, but number two, They grumbled over the familiarity of who he was. So how so? Look at verse 42. They said, is this not, or is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say that I have come down from heaven? How does he say that? I mean, what they're saying here, whether it's Jewish people or leadership, We know this guy. 
we know this guy's family. I know his father and his mother. This guy doesn't have some divine origin. How would he say that he's the bread that came down from heaven from the Father? I mean, that was preposterous to them. In another text, in Mark chapter 6, remember it said this, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Very clearly, they took offense at him. In other words, he's making preposterous claims in their mind. And we know this guy. We know who he is. In fact, in another text in Luke 4, they all spoke well of him in a positive light and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And their argument here and the leader's response, if you will, it was one of unbelief is we've known him since the days of his childhood. We've known his family. And so they question his origin. On the one hand, he is claiming a divine origin, but we know that he has an earthly family. And in the leader's response to the discourse is, are you kidding me? Well, I mean, why would he say that he has a divine lineage from God himself? Isn't this the one who grew up in Nazareth? And so, beloved, listen, there is an eternal and divine logos, I'm admitting to you, that became flesh. And they're grappling with the mystery, not only here in the history, but some of you might be grappling with that today. I mean, on the one hand, he was born of a virgin. But on the other hand, he existed from all eternity. On the one hand, nothing has come into being that has come into being. But then on the other hand, the word in John 1.14 became flesh. This is a mystery, but here more than a mystery is the unbelief of the leader's response. So they grumbled over the fact of what he said, and they grumbled over the familiarity of who he was. And same it is today. People will struggle with the words of Christ, with the demonstration of his authority, with what he said. People struggle over Christianity because of the exclusive nature of it. So what Jesus does is he steps in and he responds to the leaders here. And so I take you secondly to the second detail, to the Lord's rebuke, to the Lord's rebuke. Look at the text in verse 43. Jesus answered them. Now it's interesting. He said, do not grumble among yourselves. Now whether he heard them grumbling out loud, it could be omniscient here. We don't quite know that. But he heard them and he he rebuked them. He said, do not. He told them something not to do. Do not grumble among yourselves. And then he made this very solemn statement. Look at it in verse 44. It's breathtaking. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And so he rebukes them and he begins to teach them. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Now, beloved, we're back then again on the sovereignty of God. This is a divine drawing. In other words, when you look at the doctrine of salvation in Scripture, God is initiating in your salvation. God is enabling you to believe in Him. God here, that's what the text says, is drawing you. He's drawing you. Now, I won't take you to some of the other context where that word is used, but when the word drawn is used, there is resistance, if you will, overcome by a force. Like when you're catching fish, you're, you're pulling them in. The fish does not want to come in, but the line is pulling it in. And here is the father drawing. Beloved, it doesn't say that the father is advising. It doesn't say that the, that the father is, is begging It doesn't say that the Father is conjoling you, though I would say He's wooing you. But here the text is very strong. He is drawing you. He is calling you to Himself. 
Look back again at verse 37. It says there, all that the Father gives me will in fact come to me. Look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So God is drawing to Christ those whom he has chosen for salvation in eternity past. We discussed that the last two weeks. You say, well, Scott, how does he do that? Well, I could say this, that he draws us through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? You look back to that time in your salvation. Look back to that crisis point. Look back to that point where you suddenly realized, maybe for the first time in your life, you were a sinner. And all of a sudden, the gospel became beautiful to you. And all of a sudden, what you used to run from, you are now running to. And what you used to hate, you now love. And where you used to want to live for yourself, you've now given yourself wholeheartedly to the kingdom. You say, what is that? He's drawing you. You say, what is that? It's the power of the Holy Spirit giving you a view of Christ. And in that way that he's drawing you, and in that way that he's pulling you to see himself, he at the same time is exposing your sin. Go back to that time when you came to Christ. Go back to that time when you knew without a shadow of a doubt your sin separated you from a holy God. Well, he's drawing you. And in that drawing, he begins to expose your sin. Then at the same time he's exposing your sin, he's exposing your self-righteousness. He's exposing that you're trusting in yourself, that you think you're a good person, that you think you're a good man, that you think you've come from a good family, that you think that you're a nice kid, that you're a young woman and whatever it is. And he begins to show you that no matter how good you are, if you have one sin, you've stumbled over one sin and you've become guilty of all of it. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the drawing power of Christ. He's exposing our sin. He's exposing our self-righteousness. He awakens your conscience. Boy, I remember that in my own life. I just remember not wanting to follow Christ, not wanting to obey Christ in junior high, not wanting to heed his command, not wanting my mom or dad to tell me what to do, wanting to hide. But all of a sudden, that one night when he drew me, if you will, with a force. I had but no conscious thought. I saw the beauty of Christ. I saw my sin. I saw my self-righteousness. He awakened my conscience. He awakened my sense of need. And then the Holy Spirit even overcomes my own pride. And I, I came to him. So here's what Jesus says in this rebuke to the leader's response. No one, not even anyone in here, can come to the Father unless he draws him. Which should lead us then to this, to evangelistic prayer. That when you're evangelizing people, you're praying as you're opening the good news to them. All at the same time that God is going to awaken them and draw them to himself. So only those who the Father draws can come. And yet, and yet, look at verse 40. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. It's there side by side. You say, what's side by side? Verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son. Everyone. You say, well, Scott, how do you explain that? I can't explain it. I can't explain it. Both are true. But all I know is in this text, in verse 44, the Father is drawing. Now, let me clarify something to you. And I want to clarify a point of theology for you. Because really, when we gather, I I want us to be equipped, as Dom said earlier. But there are some theologians that say that lost sinners, okay, supposedly have the power to accept or reject the gospel of their own free will, okay? They can accept it or reject it on their own free will. And theologians call that concept, this isn't so important, but just I'll explain it to you. They call it prevenient grace. 
In other words, prevenient grace gives the sinner the power to accept or reject the gospel. It is this prevenient grace given by God to all men indiscriminately. Prevenient grace is seen in God sending the sunshine and the rain upon all the world. It is universally given, prevenient grace, to counteract the effect of sin. And the thought would be is that since God has given this grace to all, everyone is capable of accepting the offer of salvation. Consequently, here's what you need to understand, there is no need that some would teach in prevenient grace, there's no need for any special application of God's grace to particular individuals. There's no no special thing. There's no special need there because he's given his prevenient grace to all and all have the opportunity to respond. Now, certainly there's parts of that that are not all wrong in there. He gives his grace, does he not? And the rain falls on the good and the evil. But beloved, beloved, (laughs) the Bible indicates, and this is where theology comes in and this is where scripture comes in, It talks about man's fallenness. It says in the word of God that man is unable to come to Christ in his own doing. Now you say, but Scott, you just said that whoever comes, I know that. But lest the father draw them, they can't come. So God is the one initiating. And we understand from the word of God, you can repeat it with me, that Ephesians 2.1 says that you are what? Dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't respond to the things of Christ. They're alive physically, but dead spiritually. And I think this always came to life to me. I think I told you that one time before when I was a a little kid, probably seven or eight, just in my little house in Canoga Park in which we grew up in a fire truck and an ambulance zipped down my house, which is weird because we lived in a little tiny street and and amazingly as I heard the roar of the engines it just stopped uh, two houses down and there there was ambulances and trucks and police cars had pulled in and there was a crowd growing on the outside and you know when you're young you don't have any kind of restraint sometimes so rather than waiting on the outside I opened my door flew out my house round down to the corner ran past the crowd past the, the the police officers and I went straight into the door And there I was, straight into the door. The paramedics were there, and they were over this man. I knew this man. It was my neighbor. And they were just putting on that... uh those ringers on him or those paddles on him, and they were trying to shock him. But I, I could just tell he, he wasn't responding at all. And then it was so sad because it was an elderly couple, and then the wife just came down and began to just beat his breast, wake up, wake up, wake up. But her husband was no longer there. Her husband had passed away. They were trying to bring him back to life, but there was no life in him. Listen, before God Almighty steps into your life, there is no spiritual life in you. In other words, you're dead. You're spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. The Bible says in John 8, 34, that we are slaves to unrighteousness. The Bible says in Colossians 1, 21, that we are alienated from the life of God. The Bible says in Romans 5, 10, that we are hostile to him. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, or excuse me, 4, 4, that we are spiritually blind, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2, 26, that we are captive to sin. The Bible says in Colossians 1, 13, that we are trapped in Satan's kingdom. The Bible says in Jer- Jeremiah 13, 23, that we are powerless to change our sinful natures. In fact, it asks the question, can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? And the answer is no. In fact, the Bible goes on to say in Romans 8, 8, that we are unable to please God. We are incapable of understanding spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. 
And although our, certainly our will is involved in coming to Christ, I get that. Yeah, maybe I'll say that again. Our will is involved in coming to Christ since no one is saved apart from believing the gospel. Sinners too, though, cannot come to him of their own free will. It takes the power and the operation and the supernatural ability of God, his word, and the Holy Spirit. Like even though I'm preaching now, Unless God draws, nothing will happen. So as Blake prayed for eyes to be open, you pray for me all week. Pray for our services. Pray for our teaching outlet. Because only in the mind and the heart of a triune God, as he sends his word out, the Father has to draw. But if the Father doesn't draw, they can't come to him. You you say, well, that's a pretty strong statement. Well, look at it in verse 44. It's the words of Jesus. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then this absolute boldness of eternal security in verse 44. And I will raise him up on the last day. The last day is the day of judgment. So we must be drawn. Now to support this argument. Look what Jesus says in verse 45. He's supporting his argument. He says, it is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. But he says there in verse 45, that it's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. What does this mean? Well, he's paraphrasing, if you want to look at that later, Isaiah 54, 13. 54, 13. And it's addressed there, does the prophet Isaiah to the restored city of Jerusalem. In other words, it says there, all your sons will be taught by the Lord in the restored Jerusalem. But God's promise to Jerusalem is now fulfilled in the person of Christ. You say, well, how so? Look again at the text now in verse 40. Um, Six or actually in 45, it says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, Jesus says, comes to me. Stop there just for a second. That is a staggering statement. Look at it again. It says that everyone, verse 45, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In other words, to hear God is to come to Jesus. Now that is about as bold and as an exclusive statement that can ever be made. Listen, Jesus said that if you've learned and heard from the Father, you will come to me. That is is exclusive supremacy is what I call that. But then look what he says though. Look on in the text in verse 46. Look at this. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father. Stop there just for a second. It seems to be kind of out of place. Who's ever heard and learned from the Father comes to me. But then he says, not that anyone has seen the Father. Seems out of place, but actually it's a profound point. That statement there that not any or everyone or anyone has seen the Father. He's saying nobody has set their eyes on God the Father. Look back just one chapter in chapter 5 in verse 37. Remember Jesus said, the Father in 537 who sent me has borne witness about me. But then look what he says here. His voice you have never heard and his form you have never, what? Seen. You've not seen God. He says that in verse 46. Not anyone has seen the Father, and his voice you've never heard, and his form, verse 37 of chapter 5, you have never seen. Remember, certainly in the Old Testament, in Exodus 33, when Moses told God that he wants to see his glory. And remember, God's response is, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and what? And live. Which is, by the way, it's a, it's a good word even for today of people who claim to see God. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.16, speaking of the character of God, 
who alone has immortality, and he dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. This is the teaching of Scripture. No one has seen God. But would you look down at the statement? This is breathtaking. Not that anyone has seen the Father, underline this, except He who is from God, He has seen what? The Father. What a statement. Who is that? That is the person of Christ. Verse 46. Except he who is from God, he's been saying that, he has seen the Father. So, beloved, it makes sense the one who was with the Father, the one who was sent by the Father, the one who became flesh, is the only one who can speak with such authority and knowledge. In fact, look back, this is important, in John 1.18. In John 1.18, there, remember that great statement there, that no one has seen, John the Apostle says, the only God. You, you see that there? You have to, no one has seen, or no one has ever seen God. But then it says, the only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him, what? Known. Jesus discloses to us and explains to us God the Father. It is the disclosure of God. Beloved, it is the knowledge of God. And it comes from Christ. And so the invisible God becomes visible in the person of Christ. Now, if you're a young person in here this morning, and you hear other people claim to have the truth, or claim to know God, no, listen, this is a very clear word here. God the Father is explained in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus said to Philip in John 14, 7, if you had known me, you would have known what? The Father also. From now on, you know him and you've seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen what? The Father. Just think about the search for truth that people have today. In fact, Jesus said, and you write this one down in John 12, 45, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And so he gives this discourse of the bread of life. The leaders respond, Jesus, we know this guy. The Lord rebukes them and he begins to clarify who he is. I read an interesting article this week in Christianity Today. It was by a man by the name of Amos Young, Y-O-N-G. And the article was touted as, quote, cutting edge. (laughs) And whenever I hear cutting edge, I'm like, oh, no. Cutting edge, really? Cutting edge. And then it said as a cutting-edge scholar with, quote, a fresh perspective. And then I thought, oh, no. And Young's pressing question in this article and in his book is this. Is it possible that the Holy Spirit is active not only among Christians of all denominations, but also among believers among believers of the non-Christian world religions, which is interesting that he would say that. Young wrote a book, and the book was called Spirit Word Community. He's obviously out of an AG background, Assembly of God. It's called the Spirit Word Community, subtitled The Spirit Poured Out on All Flesh, which, again, is a quote from Joel too. But here's his central thesis is that because the Spirit of God is universally active in creation and in the new creation, the religions, quote, of the world, like everything else that exists, are providentially sustained by the Spirit of God for divine purposes, end of quote. 
I thought, what, what is he talking about? I read about doctrines of demons. I read about false teachers that have come in, and yet he's creating a caveat here for the religions of the world, like everything else that exists, that are providentially sustained by the Spirit of God for divine purposes. He said, and then the writer said, where most see the devil's work, Yang sees the spirits. Concretely, that means that Christians, here's the essence of his article, should be open to learning from and being enriched by the Spirit's work in world religions. Dialogue must take place alongside evangelism, he argues, so that all the religions, including Christianity, can learn from each other what the Spirit is doing. Beloved, let me just tell you, what the Spirit is doing is revealing Christ, and Christ is revealing God the Father. This is just, you know, when I read that, the cutting edge and the fresh perspective, and now this is what people call scholarship. And you say, well, what criteria... Uh, should we use for discerning the Spirit's work in a non-Christian movement? And here's what Young said. He hesitates to elevate Jesus Christ to exclusive status for such discernment. For him, quote, signs of the kingdom, such as personal and social transformation in love, might serve as such tools, he said. In other words, it's just that gospel stuff that helps community, but there's no gospel. He said the spirit might be active then whenever the kingdom of God is being advanced, whether or not Jesus Christ is central to the religious messages and practices. Wow, that makes it in Christianity today. In fact, I saw this week, did you see the one of the guy in Polokwane, the faith healer, who was trying to work up a miracle for people? So he laid this girl on the platform and he took a a speaker about four times the size of that. He put it on top of the girl as, as a great example of a miracle that he was going to perform of this girl who was sick. He puts the speaker on it and then he sits on the speaker and he's on a microphone and he's gonna heal this girl supposedly. Well, she doesn't respond, she doesn't move they, he gets off the speaker. They take the speaker off. She's unconscious. They take her to the hospital, and she's dead. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that goes on all the time. Somehow, trying to reveal God, reveal the miraculous, when, beloved, he's already given it to you. Amen? He's already given you the word. And here, that unbelievable statement in verse 46 that not anyone has seen the Father except he was from God. He has seen the Father. What a precious truth. Listen, beloved, to hear God, and I mean that in the most wide way, to hear God is to come to Jesus because Jesus is the one who speaks God's word and reveals God. This is exclusive supremacy. Now, this may bug some of you. You say, well, what about the other world religions? They are sending people straight to hell. Period. Period. I mean, I I don't know another way to say it. They're coming in the guise of godliness while leading people to the back door of hell all at the same time. If whatever's being taught isn't leading back to the person of Christ, then whatever they're saying about God is not true because Christ is going to reveal God. And beloved, this is just the message. This will get us in trouble in the future. In fact, this message is so weighty that some disciples here in 66 turned back and were no longer walking with him. So here is the leader's response, the Lord's rebuke, but thirdly, and most importantly, the Lord's revelation. The Lord's revelation. He says in verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, (laughs) and there he comes right back at this, Whoever believes has eternal life. How do you get that? I don't know, Scott. I don't know. How do you figure it out? On the one hand, the father's drawing, but then he comes back in verse 47. I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. You say, well, Scott, what is it? Is it whoever believes or is it the father drawing? And the answer is yes. Now, I will tell you this. He's got to draw you or no one can respond because the spiritual EKG is flatlined. I mean, how's dead people going to respond? I mean, there's no, there's no life. And so listen, 
If He saved you, then praise God that He drew you, that He knows you. And I'm looking at my watch. We're out of time. So, I really thought I could make 10 verses today. Um, we didn't. But listen, Jesus reigns supreme, doesn't He? Jesus is the Father's revelation. The invisible God, the Imago Dei of Colossians 1.15 becomes visible in the person of Christ and Christ reveals God the Father to us and it's the Holy Spirit's role. Beloved, you know this. Maybe I just need to say this. The Holy Spirit does a few things in the Scripture. He convicts of sin, number one, but He reveals the person of Christ to us. That's what he does. He showcases Jesus Christ. But listen, this is the truth of the word of God. And I'm just trying to be faithful to bring it to you as it stands in it. But listen, on the one hand, you ought to be humbled that he drew you. I mean, I can tell you, I, I, can, I think when I was talking about exposing your conscience, exposing your need, show, I was talking about my own life. I know it's God because I, I, it drove me to my knees. It drove me down to prayer that very night because he was drawing me. The hound of heaven was after me. You say, what do you mean the hound of heaven? The Puritans used to talk about that. Because I think I've told you before, I was running from him. I was running from him for two years of my life. I'm, I'm just running. What do you mean running from him? I didn't want to submit to him. He's king, and I wanted to be king. He's Lord, and I wanted to be Lord. That's the problem. That was the problem. He, he wanted me to submit and I wanted to reign. My mom told me to not hang around this girl and I thought that girl was kind of pretty. And so I didn't want to submit to anybody until all of a sudden he began to draw me because I, was, I, I believe he's sovereign, number one. And number two, I, I had some loose affiliation in junior high with the word of God and he exposed the word of God. So listen, he starts he initiates. He's the sovereign one drawing. However, they've got to believe, and somehow those two truths will make sure that they, we don't, you know, ex, you know, overemphasize one at the expense of other. You say, well, Scott, what do you mean by that? This is the sermon beyond the sermon. One thing, and then we're going to pray. I've seen, I've seen Calvinists who are so focused on the sovereignty of God that I've looked guys in their face and said, you're rude, though. You're rude and you're obnoxious because there's such a pride that sometimes if you overemphasize that doctrine, it leads people to pride where they feel no responsibility and compulsion for the gospel. And I think that's out of balance. On the other hand, you could so overemphasize man's response that you could become manipulative in your efforts for evangelism to see somehow the power of God at work, and it happens in children's ministry all the time. Just raise the hand. Just pray the prayer. And, and there's an overemphasis. You say, well, Scott, I mean, that's a great emphasis. To Sure it is. But you want to make sure, farmers, you don't pick green fruit. You want to make sure that the Holy Spirit's working through His Word, through the means of grace of His Word, so that you don't become a manipulator. Listen, I could probably go over into the children's ministry, and I never would in this sense. I could just preach on the doctrine of hell and scare a lot of kids, but that isn't, that's not necessarily what saves people. It has to be the work of God in the heart of an individual. So, beloved, we've got His sovereignty we want to lift it up. We want to exalt it. Lest the Father draw him. He can't come. On the other hand, whoever believes and whoever comes and to all who receive him, the prophet said to everyone who calls, they're both there. You say, well, when are you going to figure it out? In heaven, we're going to figure it out, okay? But let's not overemphasize one at the expense of the other. And let's make sure that we're balanced in our theology. But listen, praise God if he saved you, he drew you, right? And um, you pray in your evangelism, God, open their heart. You say, well, Scott, does this give you, does it discourage you for evangelism? No, it encourages me because God's got people set apart for him and somehow he uses me in that process, right? I still remember the time, um, and I'm all done right here. I, st I still remember the time I was in an evangelism training 
deal uh, way back. I was probably 19 years old, and the church was training us in evangelism. And we used to just go visit the, the visitors that came on Sunday. They turned in a little blue card, and the blue cards came in on Monday. And then they got put out to these evangelism teams. And then a card, her name was, I still remember her name. Her name was Pam Smith. And so we went over that night. She just came on Sunday, and I was knocking on her door on Tuesday, which I don't know, I, we're still knocking on doors here. We want to just talk to people. Some people in our church are doing I knocked on our door. We were with a team of people. Um, Patty was with me. I was dating her at that time, and I helped her learn a few scriptures on the side after the class was over. That's another story. But she was, she was with me, and I just remember going in and sharing the gospel with Pam Smith. And it was just one of those divine appointments. You say, Scott, did you know what you were doing? No, I didn't know. Pam, here's the gospel. I mean, I'm 19 years old. I mean, I was in Christ at 14. And I began to explain to her the work of Christ. And within about 15 minutes, big tears began to well up in her eyes. And she began to sob. I said, Pam, I'm so sorry I offended you. No, Scott, how come nobody's told me this before? I said, oh, you like what I said. Okay, good. And so I begin to share with her. And she says, I want that. How do I get that? I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven right there in her living room. The four of us, the three on our team and her, got on our knees. And she opened her heart and came to Christ. Now listen, is he sovereign? Yeah. Did he call Pam Smith before the foundation of the world? Yeah. But all I know is he uses you and I in that process to share this book. Now, sometimes he just redeems people reading. I get that too. But listen, we have the wonderful privilege to share the good news. Hey, men, some of you ought to step up. Who's coming to Teen Challenge with me and Dom on Sunday night? Who's coming? Some of you dudes have been sitting on your rear 20 years. Let's go, huh? Let's go. Come on, there's a lost, dying people out there, and we got the the best news. And I don't know why the, you say, what happened with Pam Smith? The Lord was drawn her. He just used little old me in the process to share the good news. He's going to use you. Amen.